Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you to another worship service at the Seventh, uh, Williams Lake Seventh-day Adventist Church on a Sabbath morning. I'm delighted to be here with you and share the message of hope with a world that is in anxious thoughts or... Greetings, friends. When you hear the term camp meeting, what comes to your mind? Depending what part of the world you are in, you might be thinking of tents and sawdust, or trees and lakes, or some other beautiful outdoor setting. You probably are also remembering warm fellowship with other believers, inspiring messages, and uplifting music. You may even be thinking of your own baptism or that of a loved one or friend. As many thousands of baptisms have taken place at camp meetings around the world. In any case, the idea of camp meeting brings back fond memories for many people and has been sorely missed during this past year as the coronavirus shut down all such gatherings. This year, however, I have great news. There will be an Adventist virtual global camp meeting that no virus can shut down. It's free and open to everyone around the world and will begin next week on Wednesday, May 19, and will continue through Sunday, May 23. While this camp meeting will be somewhat different from the past, the Adventist Virtual Global Camp Meeting brings the entire world church together to worship, to be inspired, and to learn. This event showcases the incredible breadth and depth of Adventist ministries around the globe. It will feature hundreds of presentations, seminars, and workshops in discipleship, education, health ministries, media, missions, and theology. There will be roundtable discussions with church leaders and continuing education credits for pastors and teachers. Amazingly, there will even be a cutting-edge exhibit hall where you can visit the booths or exhibits of numerous Adventist organizations 
who will be sharing their resources for mission. And best of all, it's free. The Adventist Virtual Global Camp Meeting will have programming centered on three major regions, the Asia-Pacific area, the European-African area, and the Americas. Seminars will be scheduled for convenient access from time zones around the world. All you have to do is go to campmeeting.com to register. It's completely free. You know, friends, camp meetings of a sort have been around for a very long time. As God's people gathered together for spiritual instruction, refreshment, and encouragement. In Testimonies to the Church, Volume 6, we read the following. Anciently, the Lord instructed his people to assemble three times a year for his worship. To these holy convocations, the children of Israel came, bringing to the house of God their tithes, their sin offerings, and their offerings of gratitude. They met to recount God's mercies, to make known his wonderful works, and to offer praise and thanksgiving to his name. And they were to unite in the sacrificial service which pointed to Christ as the Lamb of God. Thus, they were to be preserved from the corrupting power of worldliness and idolatry. And speaking of camp meetings in a more modern era, Ellen White wrote, the camp meeting is one of the most important agencies in our work. It is one of the most effective methods of arresting the attention of the people and reaching all classes with the gospel invitation. She continues, and our camp meetings have another object preparatory to this. They are to promote spiritual life among our own people. God has committed to our hands a most sacred work, and we need to meet together to receive instruction that we may be fitted to perform this work. While we may not be able to gather physically together, God has provided a way that we can meet together electronically, and His Spirit is not bound as we watch and worship together, he can still reach into each heart, into each home, bringing to each person the message he knows they need to hear. I hope you'll plan on joining us and inviting your friends and family to the Adventist Virtual Global Camp Meeting to be held beginning next Wednesday. Just go to campmeeting.com. To learn more. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for wanting to be with your people from the very beginning of time, walking in the quietness of the evening in the Garden of Eden to spend time with Adam and Eve. And now down to our day, you long to be in fellowship with us. So Lord, bless the camp meeting, this global virtual camp meeting. Help it to be a blessing to people all over the world so that they can
be revived, to be reformed, to be energized, to say, yes, Lord, I will go. I will be part of the last proclamation of your precious three angels' messages. Lord, we want you to come. Thank you for providing this opportunity to learn more during this virtual global camp meeting. Now, Lord, bless each one who will be attending and each one who is hearing and viewing this right now. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Good morning. Happy Sabbath. I'd like to personally welcome you to the Williams Lake Seventh-day Adventist Church. We are glad that this morning or this evening or wherever you are, you chose to be with us to worship today. There have been many forces at work this week to bring you to today. For you to simply make the choice to be with us, you had to exercise your will. But you also, we also, I also have to thank God for his mercy, to allow us, to allow me and you to be here together today. And so I, I pray that whatever will transpire in the next hour or so, that God's blessing will be upon us and that you and I will definitely be able to feel and understand and know that indeed God is blessing us. Uh, before we begin, I have uh, a few favors to ask you, four of them to be exact. Uh, the first one is your cell phone. Now, I know you'd like to maybe share what is happening. You'd like to share the sermon. So I'd like to ask you to do that now. And when you are done, I'd like to ask you, if you are not using it for streaming, that you turn it off so that it may not be a distraction as we dive into the Word of God. God has a message for us, and we know that the enemy will do everything and anything to distract us. So let's not give him any edge and cut off everything that he could use against us. The second thing I really need from you is I need you to pray. You need to pray for yourself that God may impart his grace upon you, but also for me. Pray that the Holy Spirit be upon me, that every word that I speak may come directly from the throne above. The third thing is I need you to think. Christianity, the Word of God, is not a mindless um, activity. It's not a mindless religion. It is something that you and I, we need to think through. God said, come and let us reason together. He wants us to think this so that we may know and we have an intelligent faith. And finally, as we are done later today, you have an opportunity and you have a duty to go and to study whatsoever we will have gone through today. That you may know, that you may understand, that you may be well grounded and founded in the truth. Because you can't take my word or anybody else's word for it. You can only take the word of God as truth. And so let us begin with a word of prayer. Father, Lord, we come to you at this time knowing that there is nowhere else to go, Lord. Only you have the word of truth. Only you have the word of life. And so, Father, we come this morning, filthy as we are, asking first for your forgiveness, for your cleansing, for your righteousness. That, Lord, you may remove anything that is sinful from us, any taint of sin, any 
anything we have done that may separate you from us. I ask, Father, that you cleanse us fully and completely, that you grant us your sweet forgiveness. I pray also, Father, for your Holy Spirit. We need him, Lord, today more than ever. For Father, we will be studying your word, and only him can guide us into all truth. He is the spirit of truth. Father, I ask, I ask for myself for a double portion. For Lord, I am, I am but dust and dirt. I am human. I am fallen. I cannot handle the word of God properly. And so, Father, please, please bestow upon me a double portion of your spirit. Hide me behind the cross. Let the blood of Jesus anoint me at this time. And Father, I pray and I ask for your mercy and for your grace. And if there's anything, Father, that we may be lacking at this time, please provide it. And I thank you, Lord, for, for what you're about to tell us, for what you're about to share with us. I thank you for all these things, Father. And I pray this in the only name that I can present myself before you with, and that is the name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, and our righteousness. Amen. Our study today will be taking place in the book of Galatians chapter 3, and I'd like to invite you to turn there. And if you have a um, <clears throat> bookmark, I'd like to uh, encourage you to put it there as we will be traveling back and forth, especially into the book of Genesis, since Galatians is highly based on the events of Genesis. You see, the church in Galatia was facing different problems, as all churches are today. Our churches are facing many challenges and problems, and there was something particular that was happening in Galatia. The problem is that they were not realizing it. In verse 1, Paul writes and says, O foolish Galatians, who had bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth? before whose eyes Jesus Christ had been evidently set forth, crucified among you. The context of the book of Galatians, and, and you can confirm that when you read the book of Acts, is that certain Jewish converts were coming into the Christian church, but they were bringing with them some of their forms, some of their custom, and they were trying to impose them upon the church. One of these things was the circumcision. Now, and there was a lot of other regulation, but that was one of the primary ones. And Paul felt that he, he needed to let them know that they, they had to realize that they were slowly going astray. Because what they were doing is they were focusing now on forms and on activities. Now, don't get me wrong. Some of these regulations, these traditions, these forms were not evil, or, and they were not bad in themselves. Uh, for example... The rite of circumcision, that was a, a token of the covenant between God and Abraham. The problem was, is that this rite became the covenant in itself. The focus was solely on the action and not on what it represented. And so works in Galatia began slowly to replace faith. There's always a, a very fine line that distinguishes the relationship between the two, between faith and works. But both are needed. Both are essential, and you cannot do away with either of them. But faith always has to be emphasized, and the works that comes out is the fruit. 
It's the outcome, the natural outworking of true faith. We believe the word of God, and that is what directs our action. It, it almost comes on an unconscious flow. The wrong approach is to, take, is to engage in the activity, to perform works, hoping that somehow it will develop faith, it will produce faith. It's to take the activity as faith itself. In this approach, uh, we do not believe the word and submit to it. But rather, again, we engage in the works as if suddenly we are faithful because we're doing that. The Bible says in Romans 10, 17, So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith does not come by works. It is produced by the word. It is the word that gives us faith. And faith produces good works. By responding to this faith, we, the, the faith that we find in the Bible, we get to work. So faith has four elements. And I'm not going to go through uh, all the depth of it, but first, faith comes by hearing the word of God. Faith is understanding the word of God. Faith is believing the word of God. And then faith is acting upon what the word says it would do, knowing full well that the word would perform that which it says it would do. To simply believe is not faith. It is a part of faith, but it is not faith. And I'll come back to that a little later. But see, the Galatians had, had, had come to a place that they were so eager to be faithful that they would engage in all sorts of activity, but they would forget faith. They would forget that work does not produce faith. They had it backward. And so Paul will begin his argument and, and his, his teaching by using Abraham, who is a, a prime example of faith that works. And he wants to open their understanding. And so in verse 6 through 9, we read, Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all the nation be blessed. So then, they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Now notice that Paul emphasized that being a child of Abraham is not by circumcision, it's by faith. Now, verse 6, which is where we begin, is actually a direct quote, a direct quotation from Genesis. And so if you'd like to turn with me, and don't lose your page there, to Genesis 15. We'll be reading verses 1 through 6, and, and pay attention to what is happening here. Beginning in verse 1 of Genesis 15, we read, After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding reward, thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house, house is this Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, 
to me thou hast given me no seed, and lo, one born in mine house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward the heaven, and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. <clears throat> you see, God told Abraham that he would have a child. He first told him that when, when God brought him out of the land of Ur, and he told him that he would become a great nation. And Abraham did not argue. Abraham left not knowing where he was going. Now, this happens a few years later, and he inquires to God, you know, how is this going to work exactly? How am I going to be a great nation if I don't even have a child? How is that going to happen? So God tells him that he will have a child. And therefore, Abraham believed and continued in his, in his, in his life, basically, knowing that whatever God has said would happen, would take place, and so that faith in the word of God was accounted to him, was credited to him as righteousness. Now, let's go back to Galatians and keep that in mind as we reread the passage we read earlier. Galatians 3, let's reread verses 6 through 9. <clears throat> Even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness... Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. So, so here is Paul trying to tell the Galatians, you have to follow Abraham's example. And the scripture, listen to this, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen, that means make the heathen righteous through faith, preach before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, in thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. And now here we have another quote once again, and this time it's from Genesis chapter 12, which is during the call of Abraham. So turn to Genesis 12, and we're going to look at this passage here. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 4. It says, Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abraham was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. According to Paul, according to what we read in Galatians, and the teaching of verse 3 of Genesis 12 is called the gospel. This idea here that all the families of the earth shall be blessed through Abraham, that is the gospel. You see, the gospel is not a New Testament thing. It's actually an Old Testament concept. It's been there for a long time. It's just, it wasn't called like that. Back in chapter 15, we're told what it's called. 
chapter 15, verse 18, it says, In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto thy seed I have given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. You see, the, the covenant, the covenant that God made with Abraham, that is the gospel. It was called a covenant. God counted Abraham as righteous. That was the covenant. That was the gospel. You know, we, we talk a lot about the gospel, and we, we always focus, or we mostly focus, I should say, on the cross, on the sacrifice of Jesus. And yes, that's good. That's important. That's the main part of it. But we, we often don't talk about what it actually does in the believer. And what it actually does is that it grants righteousness. And that is absolutely important for us to understand. And so here we have this example where the covenant of the gospel worked righteousness in Abraham. And so now go back to, Gen to Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 3, and now we'll read verse 16, and, and Paul picks up on what we've just read here. I mean, his it, whole argument, like I said, is, is based on those events in Genesis. In verse 16, we read, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saying not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to that seed which is Christ. So the seed that God was speaking of, according to Paul, actually referred to Christ. Now that makes sense because the actual seed, the actual uh, child of Abraham is Isaac. And Isaac is a type of Christ. He typifies Christ. He is an example for us to understand because Isaac was to be sacrificed as a burnt offering of all things, just as Christ was also sacrificed for sin as an offering on the cross. Now, <clears throat> with Abraham, the covenant is the gospel preached. Paul, in Galatians, speaks then of the role of the law. Because we need to understand the role of the law when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to righteousness. And the Galatians needed to understand the proper place of the law. Because their focus, remember, had shifted. It had shifted to activities rather than on faith. And so sometime in this passage here, the language may confuse people, but it doesn't have to be. So let's try to clarify that. So beginning in verse 10, we read of Galatians 3, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Curses everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Now, I need you to notice carefully. What is the curse? What is the curse that Paul speaks of? The curse is not the law. The law is not a curse. According to this passage, it is not. It is the works of the law that becomes a curse. And why is that? Why is it that the works of the law becomes a curse? Remember, we, we talked earlier about faith. We talked about this, the idea that 
works does not produce faith. The problem is once we engage in the works and we place that as our, our, our way of obtaining righteousness, then we are positioning ourselves under a curse. Because then that means we have to fulfill and complete every single requirement of the curse. And once you read in the book of Deuteronomy and in the passage 28, 29, 30, you have this constant reminder, curse is the one who does not do everything that is in the law. Verse 11 says, but that no man is justified, that means that no man is made righteous by the law in the sight of God, it is evident for the just, those that are justified, those that are made righteous, are done by faith. They live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Paul's argument is very simple. You cannot and I cannot depend on my capabilities or my capacity to keep the law. Because like, like verse, 10, verse 10 says, if you can't do it completely, you'll never be righteous you will fall off. You will not be able to be righteous. And, and let's face it, you and I have all fallen short. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all fallen under sin. And therefore, no matter how much we would try to keep the law, to keep the form, to keep the rites, to keep the ceremonies, it will not produce in us righteousness. And that's where the Galatians were heading toward. And therefore, if we would go that route as the Galatian would, we would fall under the curse of the law, the curse of the works of the law. Verse 12, and the law is not faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ had redeemed us from the curse of the law. Okay, that's important. From the curse of the law, not redeemed us from the law, but from the curse of the law. Being made a curse for us, for it is written, Curse is everyone that hangeth on a tree. That the blessings of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So again, I'm going to emphasize that again. The law is not the curse. The law is not a curse. What is a curse is working through the law to obtain righteousness. That is the curse. And that is what Christ has come to remove that specific curse. Not the law, but the emphasis on working in order to obtain righteousness. The focus then, the focus needs to shift from performance to faith. And so the, the relationship of the work and the law, uh, between the works of the law and faith in Galatia had shifted. And Paul needed to fix that and, and to um, readjust that. Now, just before I move forward, I just want to make it clear. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the law. And I hope, I'm, I'm gonna, I hope that was clear. But I'm going to make sure that I emphasize that and that I expand a little bit more in a little bit. The law is not bad. It is not unnecessary. It, I'm not saying that we must not keep it. Quite the contrary. But let's go back. So far, Paul wanted to establish a few things. First, he wanted to establish that faith is key to righteousness. Abraham is a perfect example of that. And the gospel was preached to him, and he believed it, and God was able to make him righteous. But those who attempt to be righteous by law-keeping place themselves under a curse. Because 
they work to obtain righteousness, something that is an impossibility because righteousness can only come by faith. So now, let's move on in verse 15. Brethren, now Paul, after having established his, his theology, speaks to the people. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now, to Abraham <clears throat> and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to thy seed as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant, that's the gospel, that was confirmed before God, of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of non-effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Okay, so this is basically what we spoke about. But now, here's where people get tripped up. When God gave Abraham the covenant, he says it cannot be changed. No matter what comes after, that cannot be changed. There's nothing that can move it, that can change it. It remains the same. So the law that was given on Sinai to the Israelite made no change to that covenant. Now, of course it could not. That, that law might have been spoken and written out loud, but it had always been there. The covenant was not based on the law. It was based on the promise. Then Paul says that it was added, okay, keep that in mind, it was added because of transgression. And this is, somehow this is what make, makes things complicated, but it shouldn't. The struggle becomes, what law are we talking about? What law was added? And then, what do you mean by the word added? Well, let's deal with the word added for now. In the Greek, the word does not simply implies a repetition or again or given more. So it does not necessarily mean that it was something new, but rather it was something that was emphasized, that was repeated for better understanding. So now the other question is, okay, so, so what law then was emphasized and repeated? Was it the moral law or was it the ceremonial law? And this passage has <laughs> created so much debate and conflict that it's totally unnecessary because the truth is it's both. It's both of these laws that Paul is talking about. He's talking about both of them. Both were emphasized because of transgression. One, the moral law to identify what sin is. And the other one, the ceremonial law to deal with the sin and to teach how God would indeed deal with that very sin. How he would handle sin. Verse 20. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Is the law against the promises of God? And what does Paul say? He says, God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. So he says, no, the law is not against the promises of God. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's not against the promises of God because it, the, the life and, and righteousness all comes by faith. But the scripture has concluded all under sin, 
that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Now, here Paul is actually going to make us understand what he's talking about. But he's going to shift the way that he speaks. He's going to become, um, you'll notice in his language, things change a little bit in verses 23 to 29. He says, but before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized unto Christ have put on Christ. Neither, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. For if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And here's what's been happening with this passage. This passage has been interpreted in a certain manner that actually defeats everything that Paul was trying to establish. You can either read this as a historical statement or as a personal experience. And I've been making sure that I emphasize certain words that you may distinguish between the two. Now, he begins with a historical statement when it says that all are under sin. The rest of the passage shows how an individual can actually break free from this historical statement. He says, we were kept under the law. And the question is, who is we? Who is the we that Paul is talking about? Is he talking about the whole world? No, he's not. When he says we, he's talking about himself. In the we, I'm part of it. He's talking about the Galatians. They're part of the we. He's talking about all the Christians that would come thereafter. It's talking about a group of people, not every single individual that ever lived on earth. He says, we, we were different. The, the law was our schoolmaster. It was not the world's schoolmaster. It was specifically my schoolmaster. It's your schoolmaster because the law teaches you and it points you to Christ. We might be justified by faith. We can be made righteous. We can also come to a point that we don't need to be under the schoolmaster. Then he goes on and says, ye are the children of God in faith. And as many of you have been baptized, you in Christ are then Abraham's seed. It's a very personal experience that not everyone necessarily experiences that. So the passage needs to be properly understood as a personal event, not something historical that encompasses everyone. It's only for those that comes by faith to Christ. And why are we no longer under a schoolmaster? Now, now, this is another passage that unfortunately has been destroyed and very wrongly interpreted because nowhere does it say that the schoolmaster is done away with. Nowhere does it say that the schoolmaster stops to exist. It says simply that we are no longer under the schoolmaster. 
And why? Because we are the children of God, because many of us were, was baptized, because we've been made righteous. That's the reason why we are no longer under the schoolmaster, and now we're placed under grace. And so we no longer need to be pointed to Jesus. You see, that's the purpose, and that's the point of a schoolmaster. Uh, for some reason, <laughs> people have read the word schoolmaster and, and gave it a very bad connotation. But it's not. The whole purpose is to teach, it's to be a teacher. So the law, both the ceremonial and the moral, has a purpose to teach us. We have fallen under sin. So we're in this position. And then we have the law, the moral law that tells us that is a sin. You have committed a sin. You need to go to Jesus. That's what it does. The law points out our sin, tells us you have to go to Jesus. And then you come to the ceremonial law. Ceremonial where you, you had to, to bring a lamb. And you have to sacrifice the lamb. And the priest would tell you, this lamb, that's your savior. That is your God that is going to come and die in your place. The ceremonial is teaching and pointing to your God. It's pointing to Jesus. That's what it was there for, to do that, to point and to tell you you need a savior. You can't save yourself. And then the blood would drip out of the animal and says, well, we, we got to catch all that blood because that blood is the life of your God. It's the life of your Savior. It's the price for sin. And we can't let one drop fall. We need that blood to atone for your sin. This is how God is going to deal with sin. And that is what the schoolmaster was doing in both areas, telling you and I, we need a Savior. Once we've accepted that by faith, we no longer need the schoolmaster to point us to the Savior because now we place ourselves under the Savior. By faith, we accept the sacrifice of the Savior. By faith, we receive righteousness. By faith, we position ourselves from being under the schoolmaster to being under grace. So we are no longer under the schoolmaster, but the schoolmaster doesn't go away. Because what happens once you decide that um, I, I want to uh, remove myself from grace because I want to sin? What happens then? Then you go back under the schoolmaster. Because the schoolmaster needs to tell you, listen, that's a sin. You need a savior. And then you, you go to the cross and you realize, I need a savior. I have sin. This is the sacrifice that needs to be made for my sin. Now imagine for a moment, you place yourself under grace and the schoolmaster is fully, completely done away with, doesn't exist anymore. And you fall from grace by sin. Where do you go? You have nothing. You have no schoolmaster to now point you back to the way of salvation. You cannot escape. You are stuck now. You will be under sin forever. That's why the schoolmaster was never taken away. It cannot be taken away. It is essential. In your experience, at one point, you can and you should no longer be under the schoolmaster, but it will always be there, waiting, just in case you would make a mistake, just in case 
you would fall under sin. Just in case that I decide that I no longer want to follow Jesus so that the schoolmaster can point me back to the right direction. If the schoolmaster is removed, we would lose our salvation at some point. That's why it says that at that time when we were under the schoolmaster, we were shut up from the faith. But when the faith is revealed, when the way of salvation is revealed, faith is come because we believe that this is our way of salvation. And so let's remember the schoolmaster is our friend. It's important. It's not something to be trifled with or to be done away with. Without a schoolmaster, there would be no justification by faith. There would be no sanctification by faith. There would be no righteousness by faith. The law is not bad. It's actually very good. The Bible tells us all thy commandments are good. They're essential. They're perfect. They're sweet. They're, they're what we need. Abraham understood that. But he did not depend on his power or on his strength or on the law for righteousness that would have placed him under a curse no what he did is that he focused and he believed and he placed himself under the promises and the grace of god and that is why he was accounted righteous so what was his relation with the law come back to that in a moment but i want to let you know that abraham did make mistakes in fact, even Paul in, in the next chapter in Galatians 4 will use his, his mistake, his sin, to again teach us about righteousness when talking about Hagar and Sarah. Hagar was the bond woman. Sarah was the free woman. Hagar was righteousness by works. Sarah was righteousness by faith. Ishmael was the result of works, while Isaac was the result of faith. One showed a distrust in the promise, while the other one showed complete faith and the promise. And you see the result of the promise. And so we, I, I hope you, you get to see a little bit the differences between the two and where we ought to place ourselves with, or under, I should say. Now, as I was doing all of this, I but purposely skimmed over something that we need now to address because this is where it becomes important for us. Let's go back to Galatians 3 and let's go back to verses 26 to 29. It says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as I've been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If indeed we are Christ, if we have Christ, then the promise that was given to Abraham is also Ours, and that is what can make us also children of Abraham. Now, Jesus says something very interesting when it comes to um, the children of Abraham. He was having a, a discussion with the Pharisees in, in John 8. 
And he makes this very strange statement in John 8, 39. He says, They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Speak, this is the Pharisee speaking. And Jesus said unto them, If ye were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. So now, don't get confused with this whole idea. We've, we've unpacked it, that the works of Abraham came as a result of his faith. But the question is, what did the works of Abraham look like? Because according to Jesus, the children of Abraham do the works of Abraham. And if you and I are the children of Abraham, then his work ought to be manifested in us. So let's go to Genesis 17 and let's go find out about the works of Abraham. Genesis 17, and we'll begin in verse 1. It says, And when Abraham was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And look what God is going to do. And I will make my covenant between me and thee, and I will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abraham, but thy name shall be Abraham, for a father of many nations I have made thee. And I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations out of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after these, after thee in, the, in their generation for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto them and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and, and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant therefore, thou and thy seed after thee in their generation. Wow. <clears throat> you see how many things God will do for Abraham in this covenant. He'll make him a great nation. There's going to be kings coming out of Abraham. He's going to have all this magnificent land. His, his, his descendant will be a multitude. He's giving all these incredible things to Abraham. And he says, that's my covenant. But you know, a covenant has two parties, right? A, a covenant is something where both parties has something to fulfill. If the, one of the party fails to do his part, that means the covenant is broken. Now, God's part of the covenant is, is, is pretty crazy. It's actually really, really intense. So my question now is like, what is Abraham's part of the covenant? What was his part in that covenant? Well, that's actually the first thing that God said. He didn't start with his part of the covenant. He started with Abraham's part of the covenant. He told him, walk before me. And be perfect. Now, when he says, 
walk before me. He's not saying take a stroll before me. You know, take a little jog. No, he says, live your life in my presence. That is what God meant by walk before me. You need to live every day as if you are directly in my presence. And then the only way to do that is to walk and to be perfect. You know, <laughs> again, that's, that's always something that, that there's a lot of discussion about when we talk about perfection. But what I want to point out is how, how it's interested in, in that chapter, when you read through it, when you continue reading it, how Abraham has no problem with God's requirements. God tells him, walk your life in my presence and be perfect. And Abraham doesn't say anything. Abraham doesn't argue with God. He doesn't challenge God. He doesn't say, you know, God, that sounds very nice, but, you know, nobody's perfect, right? And, you know, that's impossible. You can't do that. Have you ever met anyone who's perfect, God, like sincerely? That's just legalism. How can you ask that of me? You know, Abraham doesn't say any of these things. He, he doesn't even try to ask for a redefinition of what it means to be perfect. God just tells him, live before me, live without sin, and that's it. And Abraham doesn't argue. He makes no, you know what he fusses about? The problem with Abraham is not God's requirement. The problem that Abraham has is the fact that he's old and he, is, he can't see how God is going to give him a son at his old age. That's what he has a problem with. Not God's requirement in terms of perfection. Do you know why he doesn't have a problem with that? Because he knows that if God tells him that he can do something, that God will provide him everything that he needs to fulfill that part of the covenant. Abraham knows that if God tells him you need to do that, God will give him everything that he needs to live a moral life, to perform that which God has tell, told him to perform. God never ever asks us to do something that is impossible and if it's impossible god will make it possible because god will make it happen god will provide whatever is necessary for us so that his word be fulfilled because god is not a liar years later god has a conversation with isaac and god has something extremely interesting to say about Abraham. Now I want you to go there in Genesis 26. You need to see this for yourself. This is God speaking. This is God testifying about Abraham. Chapter 26, verse 5. God tells Isaac, because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. God says of Abraham that he did what I asked him to do. And what did God ask him? He says, walk before me and be perfect. Abraham was able to fulfill that which God had commanded him to do. If God has the power to give Abraham a child when he's 99 years old, if God has the, the power to allow him to obey, to walk before him and to be perfect, if God has the power to frame the universe, if God has the power to 
as a God to come down in human flesh and live a sinless life in human flesh, don't you think that God has enough grace to give to us so that we can obey his commandments? I don't see why not. The Galatians fell in the trap of work only. And they forgot that they needed to have faith in the God of the work. They needed to have faith in the words. And they needed to follow what the words told them to do. James' entire argument in James chapter 2 toward the end of your Bible. Turn there. We're going to read in chapter 2 of James. James has this argument where he establishes and he, he explains the role of the works in compared to faith. He says, beginning in verse 17, Even so faith, if it hath not work, is dead being alone. Yea, a man say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, which is basically this is what Christianity looks like today. When it says, only believe. Only believe. Just believe and don't do anything. Just believe. That faith is dead because it has no work with it. It says, show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. That was the Galatians' uh, position. But listen to this in verse 19. Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. You should believe that there is one God, because there is one God. The devils also believe and tremble. The devil believe only. But the devils don't have faith. Because their faith does not produce the work that it should. When you believe, that's only a part of faith. Works needs to come out. And the proof is those devils, they believe that there is one God, but they don't worship him as God. They believe that Jesus Christ is Savior and he's the Son of God, but they don't acknowledge him as that. They oppose him and they fight with him and they tempt their peop the, God's people to make them sin and to make them destroy the character that God is trying to reproduce in them. The devils believe, but they don't have faith. Verse 20. But will thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Now, why is it that Isaac offered his son upon the altar? Because God told him to. The word of God came to him and he listened to the word of God and he had faith in the word of God and he took his son and he was about to bring him to be offered on the altar to be burned alive as a, as a burnt offering for sin. That was the works that accompanied his faith. Verse 22, seest thou now how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which said, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Whatever Paul was talking about in Galatians, and whatever James is talking about now, is not contradictory, it's complementary. You need to believe and act on your belief. That's what's going to make faith. And all of that has to be based solely on what the word of God has to say. 
Don't go and believe whatever someone says. You have to believe what the Word of God says. You understand what that Word says, and you act upon that Word because you know the Word will be fulfilled in your life. This is how Abraham walked by faith. This is how he was able to be justified. And this is how you and I can also be justified and made righteous. There is no other way. You can work all your life, but if that work is not a result of your faith, you will never be justified. You can believe all you want, but if you do nothing with that faith, you will not be made righteous. You will not be justified. Abraham knew that God is able to work uh, in us both to will and to do of his good pleasures. Philippians 2.13. Now one last thought. The injunction to walk before God also implies something else. It doesn't just simply and only mean you do what is right. Genesis 18, 19. As for myself, this is one of the most difficult part of this passage. Verse 18, uh, sorry, chapter 18, verse 19. God speaking here. He says, for I know him. Wow. God says, I know Abraham. I know that he will command his children and his household after him. And they shall keep the way of the Lord and do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he had spoken of him. God knew and understood. He knew that Abraham would do what he was commanded. He knew that not only would he obey, that he would walk in faith, that he would do that which is right. He would also command his household and teach his children and teach everyone that was with him the same thing. We read elsewhere in the Bible that Abraham had over 300 armed servants trained for war. This is just the servants. These servants probably had wives and children, and he has his own children, and he has his own friends, and he has all his community. He has a, probably a shepherd and everything. He has a huge amount of people with him, and every one of them was accounted as part of his household that he would teach all of them the ways of the Lord. And we have families with few children, and we have a hard time doing that. And we wonder why Abraham was chosen. It was not haphazard. God saw Abraham. He saw his dedication. He saw his struggle. He saw what he was able to do. And because of that, God was able to choose him out of everyone else on earth to establish his covenant. God is looking to establish his covenant with us. The gospel that we may walk in his ways, that we may follow in the steps of Jesus, that we may be able to teach those that we have an influence upon, our families first. And we, if we stop being so stubborn and submit, God will also be able to work through us. That's, that's what he wants. That's all he's been wanting to do. And so Paul reminds the Galatians 
you're focusing so much on your works that you forgot everything that you've been taught. You forgot how Abraham lived this life. You want to follow all those rites and those ceremonies, but you forgot Abraham. You forgot the life that he lived. You forgot how he trusted in God and God worked through him. You forgot God. You forgot the word. You forgot how to live by faith. Today we look at our Christian churches and they have forgotten how to live by faith as well. They live by belief only. But they have no work to accompany their faith. And some people turn the complete other way like the Galatians. They just do some works. But they have faith in nothing. We need to get it right, brethren. We need to do what God asks us to do. God comes with the promise. The promise of salvation. The promise of eternal life. The promise of righteousness. The promise of forgiveness. The promise of holiness. He's got all these promises that he comes to us. And he says, I am able, I know that I can, and I am able to complete the work that I start in you. And what you and I have to do is believe, yes, that God can do it. And then get to work and live lives before God as we walk before him. Lives li live lives unto perfection. Live lives of obedience and stop arguing. We got to stop complaining. We got to stop debating. There's only one standard in this life. And the standard is Jesus Christ. And yes, the standard is way above what you and I are capable of doing. And that's why we need God. That's why we need grace. That's why we need power to make up for what we can't reach on our own. And that's why we'll never be able to do it on our own. We're putting ourselves under a curse if we're trying to do all that in our strength. We need to come to God and say, Lord, you said I can do this. You said I can overcome that sin. I'm going to walk today overcoming that sin, but I can't do it unless you empower me. So, Father, please give me all I need. Give me what I need to overcome, and God will provide. Because God wants us, you and I, to be like Jesus. Nothing short. God can't wait to just give us the righteousness of Jesus. That's all he wants. That's all he's looking for. That's all that this life is really about. That you and I may develop the character of Jesus. Righteous through and through. And there's nothing that can stop God from accomplishing that except our stubborn will. So let's give that up to God and let's fulfill his will in our lives. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we, we come before you and we realize, we realize our shortcoming, we realize our past failures, we, we realize how weak, how weak we are but Father, weakness is not an excuse to be lost. The weakest 
saint, Father, you can save. But you can't save false saints. And Father, we may be weak today, but we come to you because we know that you have strength. You are our strength. And so, Father, we want to submit our will at this time to you. We want, like Abraham, Father, to just follow where you send us. There will be struggles, there will be difficulties, but Father, you are able to provide what we need to get through it. Father, you didn't remove the Red Sea, you parted it and you made a way. And so our lives is like this Red Sea, Father, and you can part it that we may walk through it and fulfill your will, Father. Help us to walk before you and be perfect and nothing short. Thank you, Father, for being such a faithful God to us. I thank you and I pray this in the only name that is worthy to bring this request to you. That is the name of our Lord, of our Savior, of our righteousness, the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.